If you can show me that which is real to me while teaching me a way into larger society, then and only then will I drop my defenses and hostilities and I will sing your praises and help the desert bear fruit. Ralph Ellison. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. As we think about all this past week, but also where we are in terms of where we were last year, which is the theme that many folks are trying to reconcile at this moment, it must be clear that there are boundaries to be drawn. Boundaries around how we deal not only with our own identities, but boundaries to what we allow or disallow in our conversations, in our speech, and how we interact with each other. This has been front and center recently as as people begin to see the backlash, big air quotes, from some of the movements that we have seen towards a new way of being, whether it's bans on what we can teach, new responses to calls for justice, and even recently, comments by officials, (laughs) police officials, who are hearkening to times when racially restrictive covenants were allowed in this very state. We see the fight in the aftermath of racial upheaval begin to take shape and to take form. So as we check in today, we, we, we have to keep attention to the development of our national consciousness or lack thereof. And I wonder how that connects to the hope that we have or have had in this recent upheaval. Miss Georgia, as we think about this week, we think about some of the news stories that are happening and some of the conversations that are suing, er, that are ensuing. Uh, what's on your radar, especially as we turn our attention to what our collective consciousness will be as a nation? You know, there has actually been quite a few things that have transpired transpired since last week. When you look at uh, what you alluded to with a Ramsey County Sheriff Bob Fletcher. Um, being accused of making racist comments while he was live streaming on his Facebook and YouTube. He uh, alluded to sundown towns, and many people took offense to that, while others uh, said that it is likely that uh, he was honestly referencing old Westerners. And so, again, we find our community split, divided on issues that seem like they should be so simple and straightforward. Outside of that, Anthony, we also saw a lot of uh, serious uh, allegations um, being made against State Representative John Thompson, in which some he addressed and and acknowledged, and and now others are actually leading to an investigation, uh, which could result in him being pushed out of his position. Uh, Outside of that, Anthony, I would even direct our attention to Uptown, South Minneapolis, where there is still a community divided on how to honor the life of Winston Smith and Deanna Marie. We know uh, Winston Smith was shot and killed by a deputy who was a part of a federal task force last month. 
And there has been uh, very few statements from officials, no uh, footage to document uh, what happened uh, that day. And a lawsuit now that is pending, it's been filed by the only eyewitness that we know of who was in the vehicle with Winston Smith when he was fatally shot, who says he did not have a gun. Uh, and so all of these things, I feel like, um, you know, are are bubbling. And it reminds me of where our community was before George Floyd, where there were all of these small things that were uh, adding up to something bigger. You know, uh, the the mm-hmm. the Peace Garden that was created for um, Winston Smith and Deanna Marie was destroyed. And uh, when things like that happen, you, you know, you as a journalist, I can understand both sides. But I, I just wonder for the folks who do not want to hold space for those who have lost their lives, is there a more peaceful way to go about um, expressing that and, you know, taking control back of the space? Because oftentimes these spaces, like how we saw George Floyd Square, these spaces are being held by people who are hurting, who are grieving, um, who are trying to disrupt a system. And it just kind of sometimes feel like the approach that's taken is adding fuel to the fire. You know, we, we in, in, in thinking about what is transpiring at home as we check in with community, one of the things that um, is 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 developing in front of my eyes is what we feared. And I think we spoke to this in a previous episode, and that is that national zeitgeist will move on before uh, the the changes that have been asked for by community um, take place. And I, and I think as the nation moves on to other and new challenges, the question remains, what what is going to be done with the attention or lack of attention of attention being paid to um, continuing to work on the things here in the epicenter. Um, the epicenter seems to be diffusing a little bit in the eyes of, of, of some while we have real concerns on the ground. I think it's compounded by, by you know, the, re- the reporting that you did along with many others around the local uh, violence that has happened because we are all, in addition to all of the unrest and upheaval, are also in a hot summer coming off of a pandemic Folks have been cooped up inside. Folks have experienced um, uh, uh, economic losses as a result of the pandemic. All of the ingredients for a long, hot summer, that's the colloquial term given to when conditions align for for violent, intense summers as folks um, deal with real hardship in a collective space. It's a, it's a sociological, sociological phenomenon that we know of and have experienced before. That is also happening at the time, and folks are taking different attempts to try to relate it to something other than we know when the ingredients like this exist, long hot summers come about. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, as you you have both national stage, um, you know, commentary and connection, and you know, local here in the epicenter, I'm wondering how how you are seeing the community. Um, you know, grapple with the fact that it, it, it's seeming like we are on our own. You know, I, I don't know if people are quite putting it in that context yet. I think that 
people who are here are are so consumed by what's happening. And, and I think that we're also seeing a lot of people who were initially traumatized by the murder of George Floyd and even seeing Keith Ellison call that out. I, I thought it was very powerful that Keith Ellison wrote uh, a request to Judge K. Hill in response to the 26-page document that was written um, to basically justify why K. Hill made the decision he made with Chauvin sentencing, right? In that 26-page document, it outlined why he decided to give him 22 and a half years. And within that, Judge K. Hill said that the witnesses, the children specifically, were, were not traumatized and decided to not add on extra years to Chauvin sentencing for that reason. Well, Ellison responded and said, hey, look, I'm not asking you to give him more time based on this aggregating factor, but I am asking you to correct the record. In fact, these children were traumatized. And when we start to analyze the trauma, and I've had the opportunity to speak with two trauma experts, Resma Menikim, as well as Dr. Gabor Maite. And they both say uh, that, that we've suffered a collective trauma. There's been a global trauma uh, to what happened to George Floyd. And so we're in a community that is in closest proximity to where this happened. And so we're connected to it in a different way. And so all of us who watch that footage we're all still coping with that, right? We're still processing. And then now you have people who are suffering trauma from Dante Wright and then trauma from Deanna Marie. Some of the protesters were actually there when that happened. So all of this, you know, compiled on, on top of each other. So the people who are here, who are on the ground in this movement fighting, I think that they are hyper-focused on what's happening here and are maybe not connecting to the way in which it appears that the rest of the world is moving on, despite the fact that there has been little tangible change that's resulted from the murder of George Floyd. You know, uh, that courtroom, <laughs> that letter from Attorney General Keith Ellison, I... I, I it it perplexes me largely because we we more so than anybody you um watched what the witnesses how the witnesses were reacting they had to take breaks in the court proceedings because witnesses in rewatching that um couldn't take it the, the the jury at some point had to turn away from watching again and we saw that described by by courtroom reporters you got the chance to sit in the courtroom and observe some of that happening how is it that we can look at all of that and then turn around not not we how is that that, a, that the judge can look at all of that and then turn around and and remove or say that trauma wasn't a factor in in a space and it could and and you said it in your reporting um that the, the the response from Judge Cahill was that they had the ability to leave. Yeah. And somehow that that means that 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 trauma isn't felt in the same way. Yeah. So in the 26 page document, it's actually on page 16 and 17, Judge Cahill uh, explains, he elaborates. And so he says that these children were not forced 
or coerced into staying there to watch that happen. And I thought that Ellison had a very powerful response to that point specifically, because Ellen, Ellison pointed out that asking those children to ignore their moral compass that drove them to stay, that drove them to plea with Chauvin to take his knee off his neck, that drove them to plea for them to check his pulse. That is a moral compass that we should be equipping every individual in this society with. A moral compass that is driven by compassion. A moral compass that is driven by righteousness. And so what Keith Ellison said uh, in response to the judge saying they weren't forced to stay there, Ellison was saying, so you so when someone witnesses a murder, you want you want them to just leave? Hmm. You know that hmm. <laughs> it's not you're you're pushing, you're encouraging society to evolve into something that's very inhumane and and lacks compassion, you know? And so I, I thought that it was very interesting how Ellison framed that uh, response um, to his point that they could have just, just up and left. Um, and uh, he also said that people struggled with the inability to really intervene. And had Chauvin been a regular citizen and not a police officer, I think that we probably would have seen citizen intervention. But the fact that Chauvin was an authority, he's a police officer, you have other Black people who are witnessing this who are in turn afraid that they'll be shot or they'll go to jail. And so they could, they were prohibited from intervening because of his power and his position. Um, and so, uh, you know, for Ellison to even just make that request and knowing he wasn't seeking more jail time. He was seeking an acknowledgement that our youth are human. The last thing I'll say to wrap this up is Judge K. Hill specifically pointed out Judea Reynolds, nine years old, who was at Cup Foods with her 17-year-old cousin who recorded the murder of George Floyd. Nine-year-old Judea Reynolds, who didn't ask to be there. Judge Cahill, on page 16 of this document, points out the fact that in the duration of uh, footage that was captured from the body camera of one of the officers, you can see her laughing. So he, he used that to say she wasn't traumatized. You could see her laughing. While in fact... Dr. Gabor, who is a trauma expert, says that laughing is actually a defense mechanism Very that children so. use yes. to protect themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it's something that you look for. I think you hit something really important right there because it's a dangerous precedent for um, somebody who's not a... a professor of psychology who's not an expert, he's not a certified psychologist or, or, or you know, or somebody with that background um, to be making this kind of judgment because what happens because of precedence, what happens when somebody else tries to use this 
again and deny or ignore trauma that has already been inflicted, right? Because I cover mm-hmm. my eyes doesn't change the fact that I saw something happen or that I already know the pattern of what is possibly about to happen. All of these things are are documented in, re- in, in, in peer-reviewed research, right? Um, going against what a legal judgment, uh, it's not a legal judgment, I guess, in per, per se, but uh, this, this opinion um, that is rendered by the judge, it's, it's, it, it is impactful beyond just this moment. It absolutely is. And unfortunately, Judge Cahill made a decision to not amend his document, despite the fact that Keith Ellison pointed out all of these factors and rebuttaled all of the points that were made by Judge Cahill with what perceivably was sound evidence, Judge Cahill denied Ellison's request to correct the record. And so this document will set a precedent um, that does not acknowledge the trauma that witnesses endure in these heinous acts. Uh, And I think it's very unfortunate. It's a missed opportunity because had that been corrected on the record and if a court document acknowledged trauma, we could begin to evolve our criminal justice system to put restorative justice measures in place that offered restitution even for those who endured trauma while someone was committing a crime. And we would begin to move to a place of a a more holistic justice system, right? That could allocate resources to help people process and cope with the trauma so that in 10, 15, 20 years from now, they are not suffering from the symptoms of uh, of what can come from trauma. You know, uh, that gets us more towards a system that focuses on impact or at least addresses impact. Um, and we know we have a system that focuses much more heavily on intent, um, which is problematic, especially for communities of color who who um, have different cultural values in terms of the the amount of emphasis that we put on intent versus impact. Um, you you have been helped to to start off this racial reckoning project and and mentor and coach um, some amazing journalists um, with that with the team of of journalists that that are working on covering this day to day. What's great about the uh, racial reckoning project is that we get to hear daily from other journalists, up and coming journalists, journalists of color, um, capturing this moment. Um, in a daily sense, in a daily basis, so that we can keep a pulse on what is happening in community. So we are joined by two uh, of the journalists on the Racial Reckoning Project. Go ahead and introduce yourselves, Tiffany and Sophia. Um, Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, um, Hi, my name is Tiffany. I'm a reporter with Racial Reckoning. Um, I'm a Vietnamese American, and um, I use she, they pronouns. My name is Sophia. I'm a reporter with the Racial Reckoning Project. I am a second-year student at the University of St. Thomas. I'd love to get your reactions and reflections to what you've already heard us talk about so far and to get some perspective about how you are covering in this moment. Um, you, you got a chance to hear what me, me and Georgia were talking about earlier. What's coming up for you as you heard that exchange? I also was sort of following the um, Judge Cahill's statement or non-statement about... Um, the trauma that the children experience. And I think um, 
there is a, in the interviews I've done, um, a real lack of like a real hunger for just recognition of people's pain. Um, and, and, you know, people in community know that they know each other, um, and they see each other's grief, but there's a real lack of recognition of that from systems of power. Um, I was just out reporting at the intersection where Linneal Fraser was uh, killed by an MPD squad car. Um, and it was uh, very difficult to watch this family grieving um, in this very open public space without any answers. Um, one of Linneal's younger brothers told me they hadn't even yet seen his brother's body. His mother hadn't been able to see his body yet. And so I think you know, it, it, the, the Cahill situation is different, but it all amounts to sort of a disregard for the, the grief and pain that people feel and like the real legitimacy of that. I would say that a lot of people lo- local in the community are not moving on. They are still reeling from everything that has happened in the past year. A lot of people are on a journey to try to heal from everything that's happened since um know since George Floyd's death but even the events that have unfolded as a result of his death and I would say that it's important that we make space for those folks and that we um, give them the space to heal and as journalists as reporters to um, if they choose to speak with us if they choose to lend their voice to honor what they have to say and to honor um whatever it is that they're going through and uh, whatever healing looks like for them. And would you all say that you've been impacted by the events that have transpired here in our community over the last year as reporters, like going out, covering what's happening? Has that had any uh, personal or professional impact on, on you? Um, Yeah, I would definitely say so. I don't think there's any way, to report uh, in an empathetic way without um, feeling that. Um, I think I think the my experience covering the racial justice protests influenced really how I thought about the Stop Asian Hate moment. When that came about, I was really compelled to think about what are the politics of this slogan? Who is being harmed? How do I show up for community? And I learned all of that from watching people protest for Black lives. And so I began to think about my place in community and the ways that um, you advocate for yourself and the people you care about. Um, and and I also try to apply that to the stories that I tell, um, understanding that like um, there's like a legacy of protesting and activist work, especially in Minneapolis that dates back to the killing of Jamar Clark and the way that people have continued to build on that legacy. And so kind of like learning all of that has also helped me just broaden my understanding of um, this kind of local activism. I agree with Tiffany. I would say that when it comes to reporting on this, it's impossible not to uh, come at it from a place of empathy and from a place of understanding. Um, This work has made me more aware of the not only what's happening on the grounds and on the forefront, but also what has preceded it, what has been done in the past, and the kind of activism work that 
has been has that takes place in Minneapolis and hopefully will continue to take place. And it's just been an overall learning experience. Given that experience that you you all have talked to, I mean, you're putting yourselves into position to to witness and 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 have to watch and process yourselves while holding space for others. You're, you're putting yourself into a space of having to live through collectively the traumatic experiences that community is having. And I'm I'm curious. I want to know more about you as journalists. What brought you to to journaling? What brought you to wanting to do this? Um, not just this project, um, but to be journalists in the first place. For me, I've always been so interested in the idea of um, just interviewing people, talking to them, getting information from them, getting their stories from them. That's what initially drew me into journalism. And with the Racial Reckoning Project, I personally love how I'm able to speak to folks who are part of the community, speak to people who probably wouldn't, whose stories are deemed, um, quote unquote, not newsworthy by mainstream media, but definitely do deserve to have a voice in the content and the media that we consume. So it's been just very rewarding speaking with people. And I personally am very grateful to all the folks who speak to me and just lend me their story but and share it with me. Yeah, I think I grew up with sort of um, at least a lived understanding of the way that systems and like power affects me and my family. Um, Being a child of immigrants, um, being raised by a single mother, um, going to a predominantly white school, I had already that sort of class and racial analysis that I had to do just living the life that I did. And so coming into journalism where it's an everyday practice of analyzing power and holding power to account seemed like a really good fit. Um, I also partially just wanted to see more representation of Asian stories in the media. I think that desire has moved past just simply being represented and and working to make like all people, all marginalized people's lives better. Um, So it was just like, I can't not think critically about the powers that influence my life and that my family's life. Um, so I might as well do this. Um, what would you guys say has been um, your experience working with racial reckoning in comparison to, you know, that of mainstream media? Cause obviously this project is very different. Um, do you uh, think that, it has been effective in changing the narrative. Um, are there are there um, certain ways that that you feel like mainstream media has um, it accelerated certain conversations, especially since we're kind of restricted to a, a daily publication at a certain time and we're not covering breaking news, so to say. Yes, I would say that. I personally feel more supported while working with Racial Reckoning as opposed to working at, say, my student publication or if I were to intern at a mainstream media newsroom. And I would also say that the stories that we report on here are, I think, more valuable. And they are stories that our audience and our communities want to hear. And one example is I recently did a story on Somali Independence Day and how the Somali community in the Twin Cities celebrated it. 
And one response that I got from a lot of folks who I interviewed was that they didn't think that this story that I was reporting on would be considered newsworthy, but I let them know that it is newsworthy and it does deserve a spot in media and it is something that should be reported on. This is Safiya Mohammed. This weekend, Americans celebrated Independence Day. Just a few days earlier, on July 1st, Somali Americans celebrated Somali Independence Day. The holiday dates back to 1960 when Somalia liberated itself from British and Italian colonial powers. And I'm grateful that the Racial Reckoning Project is rooted in inclusive reporting and making sure that the stories that we tell reflect the communities that we serve. Yeah, absolutely. The difference between the Racial Reckoning Newsroom and mainstream news is like night and day. I mean, superficially, like what, what, in just terms of identity, we're a newsroom of mostly women and women of color. Um, and I think this newsroom thinks about is much further along in how it thinks about race and equity and justice. Um, whereas in other newsrooms, I may have to like justify why a story is interesting or why I'm thinking about or going out a story a certain way. Like people, the editors and the other reporters here just understand that. Um, it has been really an honor to learn from like you, Georgia, and your experience trailblazing as an independent journalist. And that's not an experience I would have been able to get anywhere else of just being incredibly self-built, but rooted in community that way. Like I haven't um, really, really met other, haven't been able to connect with other journalists or had that opportunity or be listened to in that way by journalists who've been as experienced as you are and other um, reporters in the newsroom as well. So it's been incredibly different and incredibly rewarding. You know, uh, we've got this feedback. So I, I work a lot with, with communities of youth who are um, being asked to access news and asked to access conversations. And we had two of those young people on in our last episode. Um, but that youth group actually follows along to the reporting on racial reckoning um, as part of their summer project, as many as is true in many different sites, is another news source to give to folks. Um, you know, one of the things I'm curious about is to what you would have to say um, to, for other folks who may not necessarily see a pathway to to um, anything other than news agencies that they historically haven't seen cover topics that they believe is news um, that they're now finally getting a chance to see um, covered by the daily reporting here. Um, I'm curious what you'd have to say for, for folks who might be interested in following in your footsteps. I would say that they should um, really be diligent and put themselves out there I got involved with this project by uh, reaching out to um, the managing editor of it, Marianne, and um, I was able to tell her about my interest in this project and that I loved the work that it was doing. And if there was any opportunity for me to get involved that I would be more than happy to help. So I would say to really put yourself out there, let people know that you're interested let people know that you're willing to do the work and opportunities like this will definitely come along the way. Yeah, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, I think the journalism industry and advancing it, it is all about who you know. And that was really daunting to me as somebody who didn't have any connections within journalism, like within my family or anyone my family knew or any of my friends. But the one thing I learned is just to reach out to all of the other journalists whose work you admire, and they're usually always more than willing to help out 
Um, and so it's all about just like reaching out and see if, you know, if someone has advice or if you can ask them out for coffee or what, you know, just a conversation can change a lot. And then they know you and then they know that you're willing to do the work or have expressed interest. Um, and they'll keep that in mind whenever opportunities come up. And obviously, like, you can create opportunities for yourself. I don't think journalism should be something you have to go to college for. I think anybody can do journalism. Um, and um, when people feel like, oh, I, like, don't know a lot about how to do it in the way that, because I didn't go to college for it. Like, I, I really don't think you need to have any formal schooling because anyone can ask tough questions and think critically and do their research. Both of you all, this, this this project is just that. It's a project, right? This is not um, a news agency, right? This isn't a news agency that's going to be going forward. So at some point, you all will have to take your skills from here and your experiences from here and apply it in a context possibly with uh, a, media, a mainstream media or, or possibly with a media company. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious what what's on your radar What's on, as you think about that horizon that at some point, you'll have to engage and take your skills into a different media or a different platform. I'm wondering what you have thought about that moment. I have thought about it. And I personally still want to do something that will include this kind of work on the grounds, reporting with people who are part of uh, minority communities and communities of color. I'm not exactly sure um, where I specifically want to work. However, I know in, it involves um, doing community and local journalism. Yeah, I think the sort of the not covering all of the breaking news all of the time has really lifted the burden off my shoulders of getting something out quickly and rather being able to sit with the news, especially when something very traumatic to the, to the community has happened, where I don't have to necessarily rush in right away and stick a mic in someone's face. I can sort of just think and take it slower um, and I think I want to take that purposefulness and that sense of like just showing up and just talking to people without necessarily having to put something out right away to other organizations that I go to. I mean, if I'm put in that situation, that wouldn't be super desirable to me. And I already know that's not the kind of journalism I want to, want to do. That's like a strike team response. That's just like get contact out as fast as fast as possible. And so, um, the sort of like, just respect and like trust that needs to be earned in the journalism profession um, and with between sources that I learned from racial reckoning is something I want to take with me um, and, and try to replicate in other places. What would you guys say is your, uh, what is your favorite story that you have covered throughout this project? What out of all the stories you've done, I know you guys have done a lot, but which one stands out to you? Which one resonates as uh, something that you're very proud uh, to have covered? I would say my first story, it was the community response to the Chauvin sentencing. I'm Safiya Mohammed. On Friday, Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years of prison. He is the first white Minneapolis police officer to be convicted of murdering a black person. Dozens gathered outside the Hennepin County Government Center to witness the historic sentencing. There, members of George Floyd's And I actually worked on it with Tiffany. So I went to the courthouse, um, the Hennepin County Government Center, where Chauvin was being sentenced, and press were not allowed in, and but 
I was able to stand with other journalists just outside and get community responses, talk to people about what their thoughts were, what their reactions were. And I'm very grateful to have had that as a first story. And I'm also really glad that uh, Tiffany was able to uh, help me out with that. Um, I think it was when I, when the city was taking some of the first steps to reopen George Floyd Square. Um, and I don't think it's my favorite because of the topic, but that like, I really enjoyed that being one of the stories I went out to be around people with. And there I could see people react in real time to this news that was happening. Mayor Jacob Fry said officials didn't expect to complete reopening the square on Thursday, but they are continuing efforts to fully open the intersection to vehicle traffic. For the Racial Reckoning Project, I'm Tiffany Bowie. I just got to see the way that people react to something that's very difficult, something that's ongoing, and see the diversity of ways that people process their emotions. And that contextualizes when we see on the TV the way someone's like shouting or yelling or crying and you realize just because the camera's trained on that person doesn't mean that's how everyone's feeling. Some people grieve quietly. Some people just need a moment to themselves. And um, that was a very sensitive time for the people in the square. And so I was there um, with um, Choma, another member of the team, and we navigated that situation together, trying to be very careful that people were still trying to process this sort of intrusion on their space by the city, uh, especially sort of at a time when no one was awake. Um, and somebody told me, one of the people we interviewed said, you know, I appreciate the way that you approached me. I've had media come up and shove a microphone in my face and it, I didn't appreciate it. And I appreciate the conversation we're having right now. And she was much more willing to tell me more and be very passionate, very open because we had just simply approached her with the level of respect she deserved. Um, so that was a really fulfilling experience. It was a very hard experience as well. You, you know, we began the show with a quote from Ralph Ellison. If you can show me how I can cling to that which is real to me while teaching me a way into larger society, then and only then will I drop my defenses and hostility and I will help you to sing praise. I will sing your praises and help you to make the desert bear fruit. I'm curious as you are out there engaging in a way that is different, the questions, the way, the approach. I've watched it. I watched it at George Floyd Square as I was part of a pastoral care team. I watched the difference in reporting, the difference in the, the care of who was talking. And it was very clear and it was very stark and it elicited very different responses from community. And so I want to commend you on your work. And then also I'm, I'm curious as you are out trying to hold, because essentially you're holding space in a different way in order to bear witness to what's happening on the ground. How are you, and we, we always close our show by asking this question, how are you being you in this moment? So while I know you've been trying to, to uphold your, your journalistic integrity and, and ask the questions and help to, to cover this story, I'm curious how you are taking care of you and being you in this moment. I'll start with you, Tiffany. Um, I think, yeah, I guess just like at heart, I'm a, a person who's um, just trying to better understand the world and understand the people that I live with and in this world. And the greatest moments to me are when people are very honest and open with me, no matter what it is they're talking about, even if they have um sort of contrary opinions to everything else that is going on. Um, 
And that moment when someone is clearly just telling you how they see the world and you're able to peek into the way that they see things is a, is a big honor. And so even though I'm often like very nervous to talk to people and more on the introverted side to be able to have so many people trust me, especially when we are in very tense moments, when there are police, you know, waiting down the block or like, you know, people can feel that they are um, being surveilled or they're, you know, they're, they're, they're threatened. They're still willing to tell me very honestly and openly how they feel and that's a great honor and that's very rejuvenating. So that's, I think that's how I try to be myself. <laughs> well, I always try to operate from a place of empathy in any interaction that I have with anyone. And I try to bring that into the reporting I do. Um, going back to what Tiffany said about approaching people, I try to always be kind and um, understanding when I speak to folks when I'm uh, reporting. So that's my way of trying to be me, just being a kind person who um, tries to make space for others and tries to give other folks a chance to um, say what they want to say and to actively and empathetically listen to what they have to say. Miss Georgia, how are you being you this week? I am being me by continuing to change the narrative through amplifying stories. And for me, what that looks like this week is a photo exhibit, which is something I never thought that I would do and am extremely nervous about uh, because I don't consider myself a photographer. And uh, so when I was presented with the opportunity to do this exhibit, uh, my initial response was like, no. Uh, but I was encouraged uh, by a good friend of mine who's who's been on the show, Marianne, uh, at Indigenous Roots, to put myself in an uncomfortable situation. Like, it's okay to be uncomfortable. That's usually where the most growth happens. And to um, acknowledge that I have captured some very historic moments over the last year or so. Um, so I am being me by uh, bringing those moments to light, which otherwise probably would have just been in a folder on my computer hidden from the world. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. You know, I, <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up and because if you didn't, I was going to ask you another question about it. Um, so, so, so where can I find it? Um, I know when this, uh, when this goes live, it may go live for folks who may not be able to be there at the event in person, but is this something I can access outside? Well, it's going to be a little exclusive. So it's free if you're able to physically come. And then I have created a uh, photo book version that uh, will be emailed out to my paid subscribers. So gotcha. if you are a monthly subscriber, um, that way you'll be able to access it and you'll have a copy of it. Um, we're potentially hoping to get physical copies printed as well that would be for sales. So you can go check out Miss Georgia Ford on Facebook and and in all the different ways that you you can access in that social media to get access to that exhibit. I think as I think about the question for how I'm being me this week and how I'm gonna be me in the weeks coming is to check in with the folks who are creating in this moment. Um, I find myself reflecting on all the moments of upheaval throughout our history, and they are always followed by moments of creativity and reflection and listening to what happens during those times is necessary. Um, I've been spending a lot of time with James Baldwin, who himself 
um, was somebody who covered. He tried to cover and put words to the consciousness that was raising as these movements were happening. He um, narrated and, and spoke to the moment, both in the assassinations of Dr. King, the assassination of Malcolm X, but also the consciousness collectively as we go through this particular moment. Um, I reminded, and I'm just leaving this memory for folks to think about, um, how we aren't far and distant from the history that has gone before. So take honor of this moment. Harriet Tubman was born when Thomas Jefferson was still alive, and she died when Ronald Reagan was still alive. So to think that we are far and detached from the history that is around us, we are not. We are not detached from George Washington Carver, who we praise for the peanut, but when we go back and listen to the speeches that he have, we hear... Uh, 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 an adolescent voice because he himself was castrated by his slave owners when he was young for fear of what he would do to their children. These stories are passed to us and through us and we live with that trauma. So how I am being me right now is to be face to face with those experiences and to know and, and understand that the survival of that and the thriving of that is a possibility despite the continued interruptions. That's how I'm clinging to that which is real to me while seeking a way into larger society. I want to thank you all for joining us. Thank you for connecting with us today, the future journalists that are going to tell us the stories that really matter. Thank you for being here. And we are going to close the show as we always do. So I'm going to kick it to you, Ms. George. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Mm -hmm.